The following podcast is for healthcare professionals only. All views expressed belong to our speakers and don't necessarily reflect those of Nestle Health Science. This series was recorded in lockdown, so please forgive our audio quality while we didn't have access to a studio. Hello and welcome to Inside Medical Nutrition Podcast, a podcast powered by Nestle Health Science and hosted by me, Dr. Linia Patel. In today's episode, we're talking about how to support tube feeding blended diets with a multidisciplinary team approach. And for the episode, I'm delighted to have an expert in the field, Harriet Farr, who is a pediatric dietitian. So a very warm welcome to the podcast, Harriet. Hello. So good to have you. And so just to begin with, Harriet, it would be really good if you could tell us a little bit about you. Why did you want to become a dietitian? So, well, I suppose like a lot of dietitians, I I really sort of liked food and I first sort of started off um, before being a dietitian working with children with weight management and that um, sort of really, I really enjoyed that really. Um, I enjoyed sort of supporting both patients and their families um, and I worked alongside of some of the dietitians um, Mm -hmm. and sort of that's what led me to applying to be a dietitian because I just wanted to um, I suppose challenge myself learn a bit more um, so I applied and was lucky enough to to, to be successful mm-hmm. um, and then since becoming a dietitian I think um, you know one of the main things um, that has sort of really drawn me in is I think it's a career for life really I think you're always learning something every day there's always a new challenge and I think you know you can specialize in various different areas throughout your career but also yeah. if you don't want to do sort of patient facing there's a, you've got the private routes you've got um sort of research as well so i think it's something when you're quite young and you're figuring out what you want to do it's quite a big i suppose ask for someone in their sort of early 20s to sort of decide what they want to do for the rest of their life and i think you invest so much time in in i suppose choosing your career path yeah. Um, and for me, dietetics, I think it just had it all, sort of the food side of things, the wanting to support families and patients and the opportunity to learn lots of different things throughout your lifetime. No, absolutely. So when did you actually specialise? So I started off um, doing um, sort of your bread and butter band five adult rotational post. So I did that for approximately about a year uh, and I always knew that I wanted to do paediatrics. So I was because having worked with weight management children early on and I knew that that was where I wanted to be eventually and I was very lucky during some of my placements that I actually managed to um, do some work in some children's hospitals so that kind of just reinforced that's definitely the area I wanted to work in. Mm -hmm. So after that rotate that you don't really get very many opportunities to sort of start your career off in paediatrics that's quite specialist quite early on um, so then I um, was lucky enough to get a secondment for a year in paediatrics and then um, from then on I just knew that was sort of the area I wanted to be in. Um, I started off doing very very general paediatrics, learning lots, <laughs> getting my grounding in paediatrics because I think adults that's there's you know lots more to learn and so I, I did that and I was lucky enough to sort of start off holding quite a small stable caseload of home entry feeding patients which I really enjoyed I think the biggest thing I enjoyed about holding that sort of caseload was that I think when you work in the acute setting off and my experience as sort of an adult band five you see patients they come into hospital 
um, they go away again and you don't really get to follow them up. Whereas with these high mental feeding patients, you, you have them right from a really young age, you know, from perhaps when they're babies and you can follow them pretty much through often until they're adult. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's sort of why I wanted to stay within that kind of enteral feeding peds role. Um, unfortunately, that's the comment came to an end. So I did a small period of time where I worked in gastro, so adult hepatology and IBS, which, again, I really enjoyed um, and learnt loads from, from those two sort of cohorts of patients. Yeah. Um, and then for the last um, sort of two years, I've been working um, predominantly in peds um, home enteral feeding, um, which, is, which is where I want to be. Very, very well, that's sort of where I am. <laughs> Within home feeding, how have you become interested in using blended diets? I suppose in terms of my interest in blended diets, I think, I suppose I've got so many parents, you know, asking about it. And I think from my experience and from sort of the research out there, I think there's, you know, so many positives that can come mm. with a blended diet. And I think as our role as a dietitian is, you know, really important just to support that. And I think that's why I just wanted to kind of gain as much knowledge and as much skills in this area so that I was sort of best placed to be able to do that um, and make sure that, you know, I was able to, um, you know, be someone that was in the right place to to support families, you know, from a health professional role. So it sounds like there's quite a lot of parent involvement in the decision to go on a blended diet. And why would that be? Where would they have heard about it? I think there's lots of research that's come out um, and I'm sure there's um, there's different groups between parents. So there's a I know there's a Facebook group uh, that parents access and they have lots of information on there that they share between themselves. So I think it's very much as well depends where in the UK you live. I know um, sort of where I am, um, I suppose, until I came into post, there wasn't a, a huge amount of our patients on a blended diet mm. whereas I know in other parts of the country that's something that's um you know there's a much higher percentage of patients so I think these families you know they they communicate with each other and they talk yeah. to each other and I think they share ideas and I think sometimes different trusts perhaps are doing slightly different things which means that some of these parents you know can see that there are other families having a blended diet and they want to know more about it uh, um, but perhaps some trusts don't necessarily have the systems in place to be able to offer that. Yeah. So the focus of this episode is looking at a multidisciplinary team um, in blended diets. So when a child is on a blended diet, mm -hmm. who in the multidisciplinary team is most involved and what roles do they all, does each kind of person have? There's quite a few of us involved. So firstly, the dietitian. <laughs> yeah. So my role would be to make sure that if a patient is on a blended diet, that they are getting, um, the, you know, a, a diet that is nutritionally adequate. Yes. That is safe, that meets their nutritional requirements and allows them to still be able to grow at the rate that is correct for them at that, that age. Um, you also have your community paediatrician. So a lot of the patients or, you know, acute paediatricians or a lot of the patients that I look after, they are, you know, under a consultant mm -hmm. who, you know, has leads on their overarching care, really. So it's really important that they're involved because they have a, you know, a really sort of um, important role in their medical care. And I suppose they would be the best placed person to be able to decide whether it's appropriate for that particular child whether it's safe in terms of the medical condition. 
Um, you've obviously got other members of the MDT, so you've got your children's community nurses, so they would go out and care for a lot of patients with enteral feeding tubes, um, so often changing low-profile devices. They're important because, you know, if there's any problems with their gastrostomy device or um, tubes become blocked, I suppose they need to have a good understanding of what parents are putting down the tube so that they can make sure that that tube is, is well-maintained um, mm. and sort of... I suppose, highlight any problems. Um, so you've also got your speech and language therapists. So they're really important um, because they will often work alongside the wider multidisciplinary team in terms of a child's oral intake. Uh, and it's important that they have an understanding of what's going on entrally as well so that we can make sure if a child is eating alongside their gastrostomy feeds that... Um, we're working together to make sure that our advice is consistent, but also mm. it's, you know, advice that is um, sort of jointly, I suppose, making sure that the patient's still able to sort of progress with, you know, any oral intake and perhaps it's not filling them up too much so that they can still move forward if that's the aim of the speech and language with um, making, you know, with their eating skills and their drinking skills. Yeah. So and would there be an occupational therapist as well involved? A lot of our patients do have occupational therapy input. It depends really from, I suppose, from an eating and drinking side of things, more around, I suppose, their feeding skills um, and their positioning during feeding um, and making sure um, that they're sort of where they're sitting or where they're positioned during their feeding is appropriate. So they can be somebody else that we would liaise with and, and any kind of decision around their feeding would be shared with, with the wider multidisciplinary team. Yeah, and um, just quickly to touch on school involvement. So if a child is going to school, who gets involved mm-hmm. then? It depends really which which school they go to. So at the moment, I have some children that go to mainstream schools, Um and some children that go to special schools. So children who are mainstream schools perhaps don't have um, as much one-to-one care at school. They tend to be sort of more able in terms of um, their learning and they might not need that one-to-one care. So it would just be um, at sort of lunchtime that they might have their either teaching assistant or a teacher that would support them with their feeds Mm. but then in special schools often you have uh, these children have like a one-to-one carer so someone that's with them for a longer period of time um and they would sort of support giving them their feeds and medications throughout the day um and we would go in and do lots well we have done lots of work with schools because this is quite a new (laughs) novel I suppose way of feeding a child because up until this point in time they've been so used to just using commercially made feeds that come often um you know in a very sterile container everything is ready made Mm. whereas this is a completely new um I suppose way of administering feed for these um carers and um teaching staff at school um something that they're not used to doing so there's lots of other things to think about at school in terms of like um, administering the feed safely and making sure that it's um, stored correctly and transported correctly so we have had to do a lot of work with schools to try and get them up to speed 
I can yeah. imagine. I can imagine. And it sounds like there's, you know, the multidisciplinary team is, is really big and there's lots of different key players. So mm-hmm. what I'm curious to learn what difference it makes when all the different uh, players within the multidisciplinary team work together and what that impact is like on a child. So I think when we're all working together, um, I think you get very joined up consistent advice and ultimately that that is going to have the best um, outcomes for that child because we're all giving the same messages if we're all in support of that blended diet um, then that's you know really helpful not just for the patients but also for parents because it is quite a a change you know for them to go from something that has been pre-made and and a lot of the children I I look after you know they've, they've never they've never had actual food before so they've never experienced um, having food ingredients they've they're very much most of them from birth have been on a commercially commercially made feed so mm-hmm. they can often be quite parents and carers can be quite apprehensive um, and they often have lots of questions that they they want to ask and I think if we're all working from the same hymn sheet as an MDT then that means that you know we can answer those questions and we can make patients feel and get their carers and families feel reassured so that they have confidence in us as a team that we are able to fully support them and so I'm curious to understand um obviously you've been talking about the importance of all the different players of the multidisciplinary team being on the same hymn sheet and the power of that Um, But I want to ask whether or not um, there are times, or maybe you have some um, experience in this, when perhaps all the different players don't agree with a patient's treatment plan. And how, how do you deal with that? How do you tackle that? So, so that can be quite difficult because, you know, obviously you're wanting to provide the best care and your ideas for a patient might not, like you say, mirror or marry up with, with somebody else's ideas for that particular patient. I think it's really important as the MBT that you're open and you're honest and you give the reasons why you want to perhaps pursue a blended diet with a particular patient and the care and what provisions you would perhaps or barriers you would overcome to, I suppose, address some of their concerns um, and just have an open discussion about it and, you know, sort of set regular points where, you you know, you would... um, sort of come back to those and review those and make sure that there's regular monitoring so every person in the MDT feels reassured but ultimately you know if there are real concerns or there are real risks that decision ultimately would lie with the paediatric consultant and you have to respect their wishes if they don't feel that that is appropriate for that child um, but most of the time in my experience um, you know we would talk about it um, and there would definitely be sort of a way that we, you know, if a parent or a carer was really, um, really wanted to do a blended diet, um, that there's ways that we can sort of support them with that as part of the multidisciplinary team. So, Harriet, what challenges have you faced as a multidisciplinary team um, when trying to start a child on a blended diet? So I think one of the biggest challenges is time. Um, I think starting a patient, especially in the early phase of starting a blended diet, is there is um, it is quite time consuming. There's lots of things that we have to think about. So those early on discussions with each member of the multidisciplinary team to decide whether it's appropriate. Um, and then there are lots of our guidance is quite strict about how we would um, approach a blended diet and make sure that um, you know it's safe to implement. So some of the things we would do beforehand are 
do, um, completing a shared decision making tool with families and their carers um, so and and the patient themselves so that can all be quite time consuming um, and it's sort of something additional to what we would do perhaps for a patient that's on a very much you know straightforward um, commercially made enteral um, feed. So you mentioned about um, the person who makes a decision about whether to start somebody on a blended diet. Who's involved in that? It would very much be, again, the MDT itself. So usually, in my experience, parents will either come to myself and say, look, I've done some reading about blended diet. What are your thoughts about it? Or I might hear from the consultant um, that you know, parents or, their, or carers of the young person or, or child have gone to um, the consultant and said, oh, you know, I, I'd really like to start a blended diet. So that's usually how those conversations come about. And then ultimately, again, we would have that discussion with any other members of the multidisciplinary team that are involved in that child's care and come to a decision about whether it's um, safe and appropriate and kind of go from there, really. Yeah. And when I was reading about um, blended diets, I saw that trust policies differ. So who's actually involved in creating these policies from trust to trust? So there's quite a few people that you need to get involved. So at our trust in particular, we have two separate policies. So we have a community policy. So for children, when they're out in the community and they're relatively well and stable, they're either at home or in care, um, that's the policy that you would follow. And then we have a hospital policy as well. And depending on the setting that the child is in at the time, I suppose um, there's obviously going to be different people involved in their care. So in terms of the hospital policy, um, there's things that you, you know, certain professionals that work in the hospital that you would need to involve um, in, in writing that guideline. In my experience, it's very much that the dietitians actually took control and wrote the guideline, but there are professionals from infection control that fed into that discussions um, and, you know, um, feedback from catering fed into that particular policy. You've got your ward, so your acute nursing and medical staff are fed into that particular policy. So they're quite different members of the multidisciplinary team to those that you have in the community, um, where you would have your community-based medical staff, like your pediatricians, and then your community children's nurses and your speech and language therapist, OTs. So from my experience, it was very much the dietitian that, that wrote the policy. Um, it was then the multidisciplinary team from both settings that fed back into that. And then that was brought to our nutrition steering group and um, clinical editorial group that then went through that to decide whether it was a, a guideline that um, was safe to be passed off. Okay, really interesting. And how then is awareness created on the options available, for example, in a hospital? In my experience, so again, our trust differs to many different trusts, and I think that's the thing. I think, um, again, like you mentioned before in the podcast, uh, some hospitals uh, do slightly different things to other hospitals. Um, so in my particular trust, uh, we allow patients to have a blended diet in hospital, um, but it has to be administered by the parent and carer, and they are responsible for bringing the blends into hospital. So it's not something that our um, medical staff would get involved or nursing staff would get involved in administering. However, if a patient is in hospital and they're acutely unwell, there will be discussions about whether that is an appropriate diet for that particular child to be on at the, t at the time, um, depending on why they're in hospital. So 
another part of my role and another, I suppose, um, factor to consider that can also be quite time consuming is what happens when a child becomes unwell. We need to have a bit of a backup emergency plan in case they are in hospital and what we're going to do when they are um, admitted. Um, so, so they're all things that we have to think about, really. Um, and very important things as well. Yes, yes. So can we just get a little bit practical for a bit, Harriet? Can you talk us through the practicalities of using a blended diet? Yes, so the first thing we need to think about is whether the the tube that the patient has in is the right tube um, to be able to administer a blended diet. So um, there are several tubes that we would not advocate using a blended diet with and we would, um, you know, they they would be unsafe um, to use. So um, our current guidance um, states that you, know, you can only use a gastrostomy tube um, and the bore of the tube needs to be 14 French or larger. Okay. Um, so that's the first thing that we need to think about. Um, and if a patient doesn't have the correct um, size gastrostomy, then you know there are conversations we can have with the surgeons about you know if you know if the blended diet was still appropriate, whether that that tube could potentially be be changed to a larger one. So it doesn't mean it's the be all and end all if, if they don't have the right or size gastrostomy tube. Um, if they have a nasogastric tube or they're jejunally fed, then that isn't something that um, we would um, would be appropriate for blended diets. Okay, and what is um, nurses' involvement? How are nurses involved in this? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because obviously I, I, I wouldn't go, it's beyond my scope of practice to go and change a tube or care for a tube if there was a problem, you know, with a, uh, if the blended diet was causing problems with the tube itself. But I guess because I know what tube the patient has and I'm the, probably the first point of call that they would have the conversations with, I guess that's how I would be able to know whether they have the right tube in place. So Harriet, talk me through the aftercare. So after starting a patient on a blended diet, um, there are several um, important things that dietitians need to monitor and other members of the MDT would need to monitor. So specifically in my role as a dietitian, um, our guidance um, advises that we would have to take nutritional bloods for these patients at different intervals um, to make sure that the blended diet that they have started um, is nutritionally adequate. Um, Often with blended diets, it's quite difficult for us to fully assess the nutritional adequacy. And when you're blending um, foods down, often a lot of the macro and micronutrients um, can be lost and it's actually less than what you originally calculated um so it's really important for us to make sure um that bloods are reviewed and also we ask parents to complete a food diary um at a three-month interval just so we can get a bit of an understanding about the foods that um, these patients are having via their gastrostomy so so that's something that i would be responsible for as the dietitian um, in terms of nursing cares, um, in my experience, blended diets and the patients that I look after, there hasn't been any kind of degrade, you know, more de- degradation of the tube or haven't noticed any significant increase in blockages of the tube. But, you know, the nurses and uh, the children's nurses who go out to review the tubes or the um, nutrition nurses who look at those tubes, they're really important in, in making sure, you know, that they if there are any problems or if they're kind of noticing that these blockages or the tube seems to be degrading a lot quicker um, than what it was previously, that they can flag that to the rest of the multidisciplinary team. So then the right person 
can then provide advice. So it might be that the patients aren't blending the diet down to the correct consistency and that's what's causing the blockages so that we can then support parents in the best way to make sure that it's it's still safe for the, for the, the child or young adult to have that blended diet. Yeah. And are there ever instances when a blended diet has not worked out? So, yes, I've got a couple of patients. Um, one in a really positive way, actually, it didn't work out. So this was a child who um, was able to eat and drink quite well, um, but it was quite inconsistent. Um, so they often um, on some days only manage maybe quarter or half of their meals, which um, they would then get a top up of a, a commercial feed to bridge the gap. Um, and the parents very much wanted to use a blended diet for the rest um, of the, the food that was remaining um, as part of their meal and give that via the gastrostomy rather than um, giving a, a sort of a commercial feed. So that's what we did. <laughs> so whatever was left on the plate, the parents would then blend up and, and, and give to the child. Um, but over time, actually, this child, um, you know, their work with speech and language and the rest of the multidisciplinary team, they began to eat and eat more of orally. So they were less reliant on their gastrostomy. So even though um, blended diet had its place for this child, um, in the end, actually, they, they stopped a blended diet um, because of a really positive improvement in their oral intake. And they don't actually... Um, need to, to rely on their gastrostomy for um, any kind of nutrition now. It's just for fluids and medication, which is which is really positive. And who made the decision to stop to stop the blended diet in that case? I suppose it was predominantly myself. <laughs> I was able to um, monitor this patient's growth, and I felt reassured that actually, um, you know, they were managing just just fine and getting everything that they needed um, from from their oral intake. And I fed that back to the multidisciplinary team, and they were quite happy um, that we stopped um, using the gastrostomy tube for feeding, um, because ultimately our aim with this you know, and with, um, with this child and with a lot of children is if we can really push oral intake um, and try to get them to meet their nutritional requirements orally, then and that's going to be the best outcome for a lot of our patients. Um, so so that's kind of where, where, where we got to with, with that child. So that was a really positive outcome um, where blended diets didn't or didn't work out or weren't needed. But it's a best story. <laughs> so, so another experience where blended diet didn't quite work out for a family I care for, their childhood um, been on gastrostomy feeds right from a young age um, and it had been very much, um, you know, just standard commercial feeds. Um, parents were quite keen to try blended diets. They'd done lots of reading. They'd spoken to other parents that had um, tried a blended diet for their children. Um, and we started it with this family. But I think they were quite a busy family and they had lots of things going on. Um, and there is lots of things to think about when you start a blended diet. It's not always easy and straightforward. You've got to think about um the time it takes to prepare the blends, how you're going to store them, um, transporting the blends. Um, so there's, there's lots of extra things that you perhaps need to consider as opposed to just having a commercial feed, which is delivered often to your front door. You then store it and then you get it out as and, and when you need to use it. Um, so there's a lot less, I suppose, preparation involved in that. Um, so for this particular family, they gave it 
a really um, sort of, a, I suppose, a, go, a good go and they, they tried to make it work for them, but it, it just didn't quite work out in the way that they wanted it to. And they were finding that actually it was, um, I suppose, quite a stressful experience um, for them because of, you know, the time and all the other things that you have to consider alongside it. So, yeah. so that was, um, but I suppose that was something that um, was, I think they were really pleased that they tried um, that blended diet, but for them, it just, it just didn't work, work out as they, as they thought it would. And they wanted to go back to just using that, that commercially based sort of feed at that point in time. But it doesn't mean that we can't try that again at another, another time for this particular child um, when it might be right for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So there seems that there's been an evolution um, in blended diets. So what do you think the future of blended diets looks like? In your opinion, what do you think the future is going to hold? So I definitely think we're going to see more and more of them. Um, in my experience, I'm definitely in the last 18 months being asked by a lot of my families whether they could start a blended diet. Um, and I think there's several, re- several reasons for that. Um, I think in my experience, um, I've seen, I'd say, pretty much mostly positive things. Um even those families who perhaps it didn't work out for, they, there were still um, some positives um, from their experience. So I've got one particular child who really struggled with um, you know, multiple seizures a day, bowels really variable, really unsettled with their reflux throughout the day. Um, and we started them on a blended diet about a year ago and their symptoms are so much better, um, I think they've had nothing but a positive experience, which is really good. Um, so I think because parents, um, you know, are sharing um, their experiences and there are different forums and there are these Facebook groups, I think, you know, lots of people are getting lots of positive feedback. And particularly now as dietitians, the more patients we are seeing and the fact that we are allowed to be supportive of blended diets, I think, we're able to build on our clinical experience and we're kind of getting lots and lots of feedback but the majority of it is is really positive so I think long term it is going to be something that that becomes pretty big. So Harriet what advice would you give to your dietetic colleagues when it comes to blended diets? The biggest thing for me were the the two things I think like it was scary to start with but what um in my experience, I think just speaking to colleagues and, and getting like, don't be afraid to, I suppose, ask other colleagues who might have more experience than, than you and try to share resources. That's kind of is where there, I'm Is there a specialist group? Do the British Dietetic Association have a specialist group? So you have your, your specialist paediatric group um, and there is... Um, uh, an advisory board who um, have ri- has written a toolkit for the BDA around blended diets. Um, and that was supposed to come out, I think, last April, April 2020. But that's still pending because the pandemic has delayed that. Um, so, so there is a specialist group um, and they are, um, they are sort of in the process of, of writing guidance for dietitians to access. Um, they're calling it like a, a blended diet toolkit. So I think we're all eagerly awaiting that to come out just to, I suppose it's helpful because I think we're all doing something slightly different. Um, I think as just from having, doing this today, this 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 talk, I think 
lots of trusts do slightly different um different things and I think by the BDA releasing that toolkit I think there'll perhaps be a bit more consistency amongst dietitians um yeah. for us to, to follow um, which I think will be really helpful and it will definitely be a really good starting point for people um members of the MBT and dietitians who are going to be involved in blended diets to become familiar with um but I think also just just don't be afraid to ask, don't be afraid to contact other dietitians because there are dietitians who have a lot of experience in blended diets and have done for so many years, um, you know, longer than me. Um, and actually, you know, they're a really good resource um, to, to go and talk about and, and, and just sort of share clinical practice, really. Um, yeah. Thank so, you, Harriet. You've, showed, you've shared some really good tips there. And if I was just to summarise... Um, you would encourage dietitians to um, go to the BDA because they've got a policy, is that right? And then um, also to um, tap into the BDA pediatric specialist group because within that group there'll be people with more experience who you can um, use as a sounding board as well. And so you were saying within that specialist group they're developing a toolkit as well. That's correct, yes, yeah. Okay. yeah. That's really useful, thank you. Um, and um, so the focus of this podcast has been around a multidisciplinary team and blended diets. Um, so my question is, is how do you think that the MDT approach is going to evolve in the future? Will it or will it not? So I think at the moment, in my experience, the right people are involved in those discussions. So I think as dietitians, you know, we are very aware that this is something that is quite new and we want to make sure that we're doing everything safely and that you know we're following the right procedures so I think at the moment the fact that we do kind of share I suppose our our feeding plans and our plans for each patient with with the wider MDT already I I don't think that that is necessarily going to change a huge amount because I think long term those professionals will still be involved with those patients Um, I think Perhaps the biggest change or the the biggest, um, I suppose, environment or setting that we need to think about as dietitians is is schools. Um, I think that's going to be quite a big change for them, particularly as well if they are sort of carers for these children during the day, but they're not medical health professionals. Um, So I think it's just making sure that as the MDT we do support um, schools and make sure that there are processes for them to follow in place but that they feel comfortable and it's you know agreed by them and and they make sure that we've given them the right amount of training and the right amount of support so I think that's perhaps where and in my experience I think that is something that um, I've really had to invest quite a lot of time in um, because ultimately we really kind of if it's working for these children and blends is the way forward then we really need you know these children spend a lot of time in school so we really need schools to be on board with that because ultimately that's a setting where you know it would be sort of disastrous if they could just have their blended diet at home but not not at school um so I think that's going to be I think definitely anyone working in blended diets um dietitians or other health professionals in the future I think there's going to need to be a lot of um, they're definitely a, a setting that you do really need to consider in any kind of feeding plan with with, with your child, or, you know, that you're looking after. 
Yeah, I think you've raised a really important point there about um, the need to invest more into kind of schools, um, particularly because you're wanting the children also to lead normal lives as well. Yeah. So if listeners are wanting more information um, and perhaps wanting to tap into some of your expertise, where can they go to find some more information of getting in touch with you, Harriet? So uh, I have a Twitter account, which is at far underscore Harriet. So you can tweet me if you've got any questions. Um, please do. I'm more than happy to answer any questions. Fantastic, Harriet. I've really had enjoyed having this conversation with you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Medical Nutrition. If you enjoyed the podcast and found the content useful, please share it with your colleagues and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. For more information on this topic or to share your feedback, please visit the Nestle Health Science N Plus Hub or click on the link in the show notes.